Welcome to episode 179 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is the first 40 miles. Today on the first 40 miles, we're recording from the trail. We're out here with our three boys. Our daughter is at home getting ready for college and interviewing for jobs. So she didn't make it out here with us on the trail. We're on the last day of our three-day odyssey in the wilderness. It's been one of the best backpacking trips we've ever had. One of our goals with spring backpacking trips is to find a place that isn't too cold or too wet. And sometimes that means heading south to California, but then that means lots of time in the car. So another goal that we have is to find a trip as close to home as possible that also is going to be not too cold and not too wet. A couple of years ago, we did the Rogue River in southwest Oregon, and we loved that trip. That was amazing. It was about four and a half hours away from home for us. And last spring break, uh, we did Tillamook Head out on the Oregon coast. So that worked out pretty well, too. It was a really muddy trail, but it never gets too cold out on the coast, and we had shelters to sleep in at a backpacker camp. And one of the trips that I had my eye on from past you know, research that I've done in past springs is the Metolius River, which is east of the Cascades. It's drier, but depending on the weather patterns, it could be very cold at night. Well, we looked at the forecast, and... The forecast was for highs around 60, which is great, and lows around 30, which is kind of cold actually, but we decided to go for it anyway. One of the fun things about this trail for our family is that it's a wide forest service road, and so we were able to hike together, you know, hiking next to each other, which was really fun and different than most trails, which are just single track, one person wide. Uh, So it made for nice conversation, and it was fun to watch our boys hiking ahead of us. And Josh and I were able to hang back and talk and hike together. So it was a really fun trail. I like the wide trails, and uh, I guess because of the freeze-thaw cycle, the road was really soft. So every time you stepped on it, it was just like squish, squish, squish. It's like walking on a cloud. I loved it. I feel like it's like the entire forest has been rototilled over the winter. Uh, just that freeze-thaw cycle of the water and snow, it makes the top maybe three or four inches of soil super soft throughout the entire forest. It's amazing how the whole forest gets rototilled and ready for spring planting in an effortless way. Well, this has turned out to be one of my favorite backpacking trips, and we'll definitely bring our daughter next time. We have to come back here. There's so many things that we've loved about this trip, and that's going to be our top five list today. The top five things that we loved about hiking the Metolius River this week. Okay, so okay, okay, so my favorite thing about this trip was the food. We had chili for the first night, and then for dinner. And then the second night we had lentils and rice. And then for lunch we just had stuff that we brought. For breakfast I had granola and milk and that was the food. My favorite part was the geocaches because I had to fill in some extra miles to complete a requirement for my backpacking merit badge in Boy Scouts. And those extra miles had some geocaches within them. So we 
logged our names in, and for a lot of them, we were the second or third to find it. And as we're going towards the trailhead, we're going to pass more geocaches that we can log. Most geocaches are found by a ton of people over time. Uh, these ones have been, they were placed about two and a half years ago, and we were usually the second or third to log these caches. So kind of cool to be that far at the top of the list. <laughs> it's just a, a place where uh, people don't come very often. All right, so one of my favorite parts of this trip was um, actually two things. It was airsoft and bouldering. So first airsoft, we brought biodegradable airsoft pellets so we didn't litter in the forest, I guess. And uh, that was pretty fun. And then the second part was bouldering. And there's a place called Shepherd's Tower. It's a really good climbing spot, but we didn't bring like ropes or equipment or anything. So we could only like boulder on one of the sides. So we like bouldered and then you can also scramble up one of the sides. And so uh, we scrambled up that and got to the top. And then from there, we saw another bouldering spot. And so we bouldered that and it was pretty fun. Prior to the hike, I was doing some research on the Oregon Hikers website where they have trip reports. And I stumbled across a thread in the Oregon Hiker forum where someone was asking about Shepherd's Tower on the Metolius River and wondering if anyone had found it, if anyone could verify that it exists and where it exists, because they had found an old climbing book from the 1960s that had a description and a sketch of Shepherd's Tower. And so as I read through that discussion thread, various people said, well, I looked at the Google satellite images and I think it might be here. Um, someone else said, well, I pulled up the LIDAR images, which do a really good job of cutting through the tree cover to really get the terrain. And yeah, I think it's there's something there at this little point. But no one could confirm that it was there. And then finally, someone posted a link to a video that they did. They took their bikes and they rode the seven miles or so to this place. And they went up into the hillside and they found Shepherd's Tower. And so now there's a YouTube video that documents that it really exists. And uh, so we came onto the trip with kind of the hope of finding Shepherd's Tower ourselves. And we were able to find it. We knew right where to look and kind of went up the hill above it and then approached from the top and we saw it. And I don't know, for me, that that was a highlight of the trip as well. It's just an amazing, picturesque tower of rock. Uh, we also found a really old anchor there that was all rusty so that people could climb. And then um, we also found a newer anchor that was like bright blue. Yeah, I would have to agree with both of you. Seeing Shepherd's Tower was one of the highlights of the trip. It's just beautiful. One of the highlights of the trip for me was being in a dry forest. The ecosystem here is a little bit different than what we're used to hiking and backpacking in. The trees are a little bit more spread out and it's just drier. And I loved waking up and not having my backpack soaked and having the ground soaked. I really enjoyed being in this environment. Nice change. Yeah, and that's really nice for a spring break trip after you've just survived winter and it's been wet and cold and it's really nice to get a change of scenery. Yeah, and I didn't mind the cold at night. In fact, I think because it was so dry, it made the cold more bearable. And every day that we were out here, it warmed up to at least, I don't know, it felt like lower 60s and the sun was shining and yeah, so we felt like we warmed up from the inside and that made it easier to get up 
in the morning when it was in the 30s. And we had some really good campfires to keep us warm in the evening. Yes, we sure did. So my favorite thing from this hike, uh, I think I mentioned it when we did our winter overnighter back in January, and that is that I slept warm. I took the negative 15 degree bag <laughs> again with a 4.4 R value pad underneath me. And the temperature overnight was around 30 degrees. And I was perfect, like not too hot, not too cold, just perfect. So I, that's my new, I guess that's my new luxury. Whenever I'm going backpacking and, and the lows are gonna be below 40, I'm gonna bring that negative 15 degree bag and just get a good night's sleep. It's so worth it. Like that uh, epiphany that we had a few months ago where we brought those bags and we're like, oh, it's just a short hike. We'll just, you know, bring these bags. Um, yeah, the extra pound or whatever it is, I don't even care. It's so worth it for that that solid night's worth of sleep. Okay, technically, 20 degrees <laughs> should be able to cover you in 30 degree weather, but for some reason it doesn't work for us and uh, we're not yeah. the only ones. I was just going to say, yeah. that's why. Yeah it seems perfectly reasonable to bring a 20 degree bag on a 30 degree night, but everyone's body is different. If you sleep cold, just bring the extra pound and you'll be comfortable. If you know you sleep hot, then fine. Yeah, bring a 40 degree bag on a 30 degree night, I guess. But that's not me. I would just shiver all night and it was totally worth the extra pound to just be comfortable. Well, I think it's only fair that we share some of the challenges of this trip, too, because every trip has challenges. No matter how blissful and memorable it is, there are going to be some things that also stand out as challenges. So does everyone want to share a challenge? Yeah. Mm -hmm. sure. Go for it. Let's start with you. The challenge for me is that the first night I got really cold, and so I woke up at like 3 a.m. and started the fire. And then I went into my mom and dad's tent. And we made room right in the middle, so it's no longer a two-person tent. We have documented proof it is a three-person tent. <laughs> we made yeah. it work. If you don't plan on moving at all, <laughs> you can fit three people if one of them is small. But Heather, have you ever worried about, like, what if one of our kids gets cold and doesn't wake up? Yeah, I do worry about that. Yeah, me too, especially when the kids were younger. And I think it makes sense if you have a very young child, you would definitely worry about that. Uh, but as they've gotten older, it's something you still worry about a little bit. But I guess if they get cold, they'll wake up. And if they wake up, they'll start moving or they'll come over to our tent or, you know, like he did, he, he stoked up the fire. There were coals left from the evening. And it wasn't wet, he was, he was dry. So if he started moving around, he would warm up. So I guess to me, the other night, having had that experience is comforting to me because now I know that if one of our kids gets cold, they'll wake up and they'll start moving. And that will probably wake me up and then I can help out and do something about it. We always set up our tent near the kids' tents. So there are some serious risks with backpacking and we do everything we can to help our kids be self-sufficient but also let them have the opportunity to experience that risk. It's a really tricky balance, especially in today's society. My challenge was getting rocks in my shoes. As I was walking around, rocks would make their way under my socks, and it would really bug me. As we've been hiking today, I've been stopping every once in a while to empty all the rocks from my shoes. 
One of my challenges was the pad that I brought. I brought a pad that was um, an ultra light pad. So it was made just so that you could fit on it. And I hammock camped with that. And so I could keep my body warm, but my arms would be hanging off the side of the pad and they'd get cold. And so I had to kind of figure out different sleeping positions, like turning sideways to try and keep my arms warm. One of my challenges on this trip was getting back into shape from a winter of sedentarism. I really feel like this winter I didn't do a great job of getting out as often as I could. My feet were not as tough as they could have been and I ended up getting a couple blisters. And that's pretty sad because the ground, like I said, had been through that freeze-thaw cycle and was fairly soft. We need a few of these trips to get us ready for our trip with Steve this summer, where we'll be spending a week on the Pacific Crest Trail and covering 90 miles. 15 is a good start. It is. I woke up this morning with a headache, so that's been my challenge. I don't know why I got plenty of sleep, like I said. All I can figure out is that maybe it was some ingredient in last night's dinner. But uh, anyway, just been fighting off a headache this morning, and that really puts a damper on things. It really has been a great trip overall. Yeah, kind of funny because the last trip that we went on, we wanted to take it. One of the reasons was because you had had like some tension headaches or something. So now we have this great trip and one of the challenges is a headache. At least with this headache, there's things I can rule out. I, I definitely didn't get it from staring at a computer screen and I didn't get it from not having enough sleep. I don't think I got it from stress. We're on a backpacking trip. <laughs> yeah, so the only other thing would be food. Yeah, so in that sense, I mean, it has helped me to perhaps narrow down what's causing headaches. Maybe there's some food ingredient that's causing it. So I'll keep trying to track that down. So it has been an incredible trip overall, and we plan on doing this trip again hopefully really soon, because it's close enough to home, and it's a beautiful area, and it's close to the river. There have been lots of features on this trail that our family has enjoyed, and we look forward to taking it again. For today's Summit Gear Review, we're back in the studio, our closet studio, <laughs> and we wanted to review something that we brought with us on our spring break trip, and that is the Yuko Air Lithium-Ion Rechargeable Headlamp. It's lighter and smaller, and uh, we were really excited to try it out. The Yuko Air rechargeable headlamp has a 170 milliamp hour lithium ion battery, and the battery charges with a standard micro USB, which is not included, but most of us probably bring one of those with us if we're going to be recharging stuff. The head strap that holds the light to your head is made of kind of a perforated neoprene that's covered in mesh. So it's super breathable and super lightweight. And that neoprene just gives that right amount of cushion. So it's really comfortable to wear and really nearly weightless. For utility, if you're going to be using this flashlight while you're hiking down the trail on high, it will project out about 150 feet, which is plenty of distance if you need to illuminate the trail at night. For brightness, the headlamp will go up to 150 lumens, but the cool thing is you don't have to use it at 150 lumens. You can save battery and really turn it all the way down to low and you'll have plenty of light. It also has a red night vision mode if you want to preserve your night vision. For mass, this headlamp weighs 1.6 ounces or 45 grams. That's what I like. I mean, that's really light. 
It might be as light as half the weight of my old Petzl that I've had for about 10 years now. I think uh, it's time for a replacement, perhaps. I think so. In fact, just in our little closet studio, we turned off the light and did a little test, and it was really surprising. Flashlights have come a long way, or headlamps, I guess, have come a long way in the last 10 years. Yeah, this Petzl that I have, good light, uh, the Petzl... Tika Plus. I got it, I think, about 10 years ago. It has four LEDs. I turn it on, and then I compare the beam from the Petzl to the beam coming from the Yuko, and it's like night and day. <laughs> the The beam out of my old Petzl is blue compared to the beam out of the Yuko, which just looks white to me. Yeah, it's a looks really clean light. Yeah, yeah, much more clear. So yeah, half the weight, rechargeable, and a much better light color. When we first learned about the Yuko Air, I was kind of concerned about the amount of time that it would stay lit, because on the package it says that it'll only go for 48 minutes on high. And I was like, uh, that's barely enough time to clean up after dinner and get your tent set up. You're kind of pushing it. Yeah, you could wear out the battery in one evening. Right. But, and a lot of other headlamps that are rechargeable, they'll, they're rated for like 200 hours. Well, maybe 200 hours on low and, and maybe 100 hours on high. So 48 minutes, we were going, whoa. What do we do? But the good news is that you don't have to use it on high. When you first turn on the lamp, it immediately turns on to low and then you can dial it up incrementally. It's like that uh, dimmer switch style and you can keep it on low and it'll go for five hours on low. That's plenty of time to get the things done you need to on the trail. For investment, the Yuko rechargeable headlamp is $35. And for trial... Yeah, let's talk about battery life first. So it's rated for 48 minutes on high. Was that enough for you? I never used it on high. I always used it on low because low was enough. That was really cool. And one of the reasons that you would want to use it on low, first of all, is to preserve battery life. But second, it preserves your night vision. So you never have to use it on high. The only reason that you would want to use it on high is if you were going to be hiking in the dark and you needed that, you know, 154 feet ahead of you illuminated. Right. So how much did you use it? We we went on a two-night, three-day trip. Both evenings, we were in the dark for several hours because it's still spring. How much did you use it and how long did it last? Well, I can't give you like a so-and-so. Exact number of minutes. Such-and-such such hours and this many minutes. But I used it liberally so that I didn't feel uh, constrained. I was like, I'm going to use it when I need it, like I normally would. And I never had any problems. It never dimmed. It never flickered. I had sufficient battery life. And if I wanted to, I could have charged it up a little bit with our solar charger while we were out hiking. And have you charged it since that trip? No, I haven't. Okay, because it no. still seems plenty bright to me. Yeah. Like we said, on low, it's still brighter than my old Petzl on high. And so you could probably take it out on another two-night trip and maybe a third one after that before you'd really need to think about recharging it. And I, I wonder if that's because, at least as backpackers, in the evening and nighttime, we use our headlamps when we need to, but like they're not constantly on. You might be sitting around the fire, so you have your light off, and then you need to go to your pack to grab something. And so you turn your headlamp on, and it's on for like 30 seconds while you go to your pack and come back to the fire. Or you're getting into your tent, and your light is on for a couple minutes while you're getting in. Even setting up your tent, that takes five minutes. 
making dinner, you're turning it on and off maybe to check the food as it's cooking or rehydrating. We tend to just develop these habits of being really conservative with our use of our headlamps. And so you can feel like you used it all night, but if you were to actually add up the number of minutes, you know, it may be under 30 minutes for that night. That's a really great point. Don't be afraid of the 45-minute battery life. When I saw that it had a 45-minute battery life on high, I was really kind of scared off and thought, oh, I don't know if this is a piece of gear that I can trust. But the five hours on low, plenty of light. And I really felt like, yeah, with um, with the way backpackers use headlamps and even with my liberal use of the headlamp on our trip, it gave plenty of light. You know, I remember back in the day when we went from PDAs to cell phones and I had a PDA, a Palm, and it lasted like two weeks on a charge. And then I switched to a cell phone that lasted a day on a charge. And I thought, wow, this is a big step backwards. But everyone kind of adjusted. And now I plug in my phone every night. I, I only plugged in my PDA once every one or two weeks. But when I go to bed, I just stick my phone on the charger. And I think that's a little bit of what's happening here with headlamps. The advantage of having this lower battery life is that it's super light. A 170 milliamp hour battery is tiny. It's about one-tenth the size or less of the battery in a cell phone. So it's really small, really light. That's how we get the 1.6 ounce weight on this headlamp. And then the fact is, most people, I think, nowadays are carrying some kind of power source with them. Whether it's a solar charger or whether it's a battery pack, it's all USB compatible. So by having a headlamp that's now rechargeable, where you don't have to bring along extra batteries, and it's rechargeable through micro USB, which is really standard, it means that it's quite easy to top it off during the day while you're on the trail. And it's not going to use hardly any of your battery pack or really hardly any time on the solar charger. So it's just a change in practice of how we operate headlamps. One of the things that I kind of struggled with a little bit with this headlamp is its fit. Now, it's very comfortable to wear, but as I was putting it on and kind of adjusting my hat, and then I was wearing a hood for a while and putting my hair in a ponytail, every time I did something to change the shape of my head, I had to change the headlamp too. And the headlamp isn't stretchy at all. So once you have it secured in place, it's going to stay that size. On the upside, because this headlamp doesn't have an elastic head strap, it means that it won't give you that constricting feeling around <laughs> your head and it won't get all stretched out or become tired like elastic does. But yeah, every time you would change your hair around or put on a hat or take off a hat or put your hood on, every time you did that, you'd have to readjust the strap on the headlamp. Right. I was rocking a ponytail and had like a, a hat on the strap wouldn't fit. Like the ponytail was just like in the right place where it kind of, my head was too big. <laughs> so. Oh, so you'd almost have to undo the Velcro on the strap, get it down where you need it right. and then pull it tight again. Yeah. Like after you got it down below the ponytail and below Each. all the bulges of the hat. Girl problems, I know. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that was a small, small issue, but part of me did want a little bit of give in the strap, even if it did mean sacrificing the comfort a little bit. So eh, it's picky, but... Well, it seems like they could keep the breathability of this neoprene strap that they have 
for the most part. And if they were to just add a little section, maybe uh, three inches or so of elastic, then that would give you just enough. It's not like you need the entire band to stretch out yeah. from, you know, one foot diameter to two feet in diameter. Right. If you just had a, an inch or so of stretch, I think that would make a difference. Yeah, I think so. It would at least be able to kind of pull over my ponytail or pull around my beanie or whatever. Yeah. And it would be very easy for them to work that into the design. They have a... A buckle? Yeah, kind of a plastic buckle thing that holds, you know, where the strap comes around and doubles back on itself onto the Velcro. So it seems like it'd be fairly easy to add a segment of elastic in there just with a second buckle maybe. Yeah, and actually the way that it's set up right now is um, a mod that I made to this headlamp. So the way that it's actually supposed to go is the strap goes into the first part of the buckle and then you put it through the second part or hole in the buckle, which makes it really difficult to pull and adjust. And when I was doing all those adjustments, uh, every time I took it off, I'd be like, oh, how come it's so hard to pull? So I took it all the way out and just slid the head strap through one section of the buckle and folded it over that one little section. So it made it a lot easier to adjust. Well, that's interesting because the buckle design plus the Velcro are essentially redundant. The buckle is designed to be where it pinches down on itself and doesn't slip. But then when you add the Velcro, that's a second way of preventing it from slipping. But then the problem is whenever you want to adjust it, you have to undo the Velcro <laughs> and keep the Velcro undone while you're pulling it through the friction, you know, the friction area of the buckle. Yeah, this is a nerdy engineering <laughs> type topic. But yeah, it's a design thing. And... Um, and Yuko is a very design-conscious company. I mean, the the air that we have is the wood panel version of the air. It's just a very beautiful, aesthetically pleasing headlamp. But yeah, there are a couple usability quirks that I think if those were solved, it would make this my favorite headlamp. Yeah, well, the good news is that that buckle thing is really easy to work around. Right. You just take it out and put it through the one part of the buckle so that it's not binding on itself. You just rely on the Velcro alone for securing it. So that's really easy. And then that just leaves, if there was just a few inches of Just of a little stretch. stretch. Just a little bit of stretch. That would be perfect. And then one thing we didn't mention, this is pretty standard, I think, in most headlamps, is that the lamp itself tilts down. So the bottom of the lamp is hinged onto the head strap, and you can tilt the lamp down, which your tent mates well, thank you for. You don't want to walk around camp with it shining in everyone's eyes. Tilt it down and don't be that guy. <laughs> so the Yuko Air lithium-ion rechargeable headlamp is lightweight. It's rechargeable. Yay! It's bright. And even though it's not as convenient to adjust, once you have it on, it's incredibly comfortable. And we'll have the link in today's show notes at thefirst40miles.com slash 179. Now we'll head back out on the trail to the Metolius River for today's backpack hack of the week, roasted starbursts. So uh, to roast a starburst, you first peel a starburst, and then you stick the starburst on a strong roasting stick, and then you stick it over the fire and wait till you see it bubble and then drip once. Once it drips, you quickly pull it out of the fire and then spin it around so that it won't drip anymore. 
spin it kind of slowly so that it doesn't fly everywhere, but spin it around so it doesn't drip, and then wait for it to cool, take it off of the stick, and then you can eat our Starburst. You get some nice Metolius River water to wash it down. <laughs> Filtered, of course. <laughs> so if you've never roasted Starbursts before, it kind of doesn't sound that exciting because you can imagine what a starburst tastes like and then you can imagine if you warmed it up it would just kind of be like a starburst that was left on a dashboard in a hot car but when you roast it over the fire it has this really cool thin crunchy shell that forms around it so the flavor doesn't really change but the texture does and it's really cool and so if you're looking for something that's a step above the traditional marshmallow, if you're kind of burned out, so to speak, on roasting marshmallows, <laughs> then maybe take some Starbursts with you on your next backpacking trip. And the cool thing is you can throw the wrappers in the fire and then you have this nice little candy to roast and it uh, tastes way better than a marshmallow. It's also easier to roast than a marshmallow because with the marshmallow, you have to get to that perfect golden brown. It can't be too white and it can't be completely burnt but with the starburst you just stick it in the fire and then wait till it's bubbling and then you take it out it's really easy and do you have to do it over coals or can you put it in the actual fire have you it done doesn't it? matter you, okay. it just needs to start bubbling nice and it's fast mm-hmm yeah seems like it's faster than a marshmallow yeah it definitely it is, is. <laughs> well thanks for sharing your backpack hack of the week no problemo mamu <laughs> And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Isaac Newton. He said, Nature is pleased with simplicity, and nature is no dummy. I fact checked this one because it didn't. A guy from the 1700s saying, Nature is no dummy. Right. Um, yeah, everything I saw attributed this quote to him, so I'm going with it. Okay. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. You can order our most recent book, 40 Backpacking Hacks, Volume 3, on Amazon or iTunes. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles. Josh and no, now let's not say any of that. I changed my mind about everything. <laughs> okay. Okay, this is pretty cool. We just stood up after recording part of the podcast on the trail, and there was a huge toad sitting right behind us. It must have been there the whole time. Now we have a pet toad. She's trying to run for five minutes.